I believe security internally shouldn't be considered or driven as a consulting team, right? Like we, we are equally responsible for the outcome as, as the product development teams or what have you. I'm not saying that we own the risk, but I'm saying that we're part of that formula. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Emilio Escobar, CISO at Datadog, former VP of Information Security at Hulu. He's a long-term developer of Ettercap and a lifelong sarcastic and idealist. I asked Emilio to come down to the show to talk about what it's like to be a CISO in the supply chain. If you work for a B2B company as the CISO, you will inevitably be brought into the conversation about your security posture as a company and how your organization as part of someone else's supply chain might affect their security. This has several implications we're going to explore. How does the CISO balance internal and external duties? And you knew we had to get into it on this show sooner or later. How technical should a CISO be and what should her or his skill set be? Emilio, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Awesome to be here. Thank you. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. So to get us started, Emilio, why don't you tell us a bit about your background in cyber and a bit about your day job? Sure. I started in cyber a long time ago, mostly out of curiosity. I think in the early 90s, got my first computer and was looking to get online, but didn't have the money for it. So it, it started looking for different ways. The neighbor's phone line was actually a pretty good use of, of my time and all BBSs that my mom didn't want me to pay long distance for. So it, it just gave me the curiosity for how to do something that is not there present. And, and it's, there's things that are blocking you from doing it. And out of like, you know, getting other people to pay for my stuff. I, I got into software security pretty early and that built my career. Computer science background, I did some product development and then quickly move over to product security, both defensive and offensive. And here I am. So my day job at Datadog is really, you know, how do we build a security program that continues the velocity of innovation that the company is known for. I think Datadog is, is very aggressive in product releases and continuous delivery. So how do we put a security program that A, becomes everyone's responsibility and people are talking to us and thinking about security, but B, we have the systems in place that continues innovation, but make sure things are, are done. And that is a lot of influence, a lot of software building by my teams and uh, a lot of discussions with customers as well. That actually brings me to my next question there. How often do you get pulled into these conversations where you're in someone else's supply chain, they're worried about your security? Do you get the nonstop stream of questionnaires and the invites to the online sites? Like, personally, as a vendor, I get hit with this stuff all the time these days, and I'm just curious how much of this you're facing. I get involved, I will say, a few times a week. And these are CISOs who want to talk to me overall, like either compliance teams, legal teams, auditors, particularly after software supply chain became a hot topic given the latest incidents that have happened people are really starting to think about holy crap we have this you know the software that is monitoring our infrastructure and we installed it like we've never thought of them of that you know threat model standpoint before and and uh, the conversation has ensued the third party portals are are actually we're getting we get bombarded quite a bit by them we take a pretty harsh stance to keep some sort of cohesiveness and understand where our data actually is and who we who we partner with and we don't partner with. And all these third parties questionnaires just keep popping up every week. Every week I hear of a new one and, yeah. and I don't know who's who and what's what anymore. But I get it, right? I, I get 
most security teams are really small, right? Strapped for resources and need, they need an easy way to manage their vendor security program. But being on the vendor side, it's really hard also to, to keep control of it. So you mentioned some of this is with CISOs, some of this is with teams. What, what do you think the ratio is? How often you're actually engaged with the clients, CISO versus it's just their security team firing some volley over the fence of, hey, answer these questions or go to this site and fill out our questionnaire there. What, what's your ratio? How often are you meeting with other CISOs? Um, I'm, I meet with CISOs quite often. My team, however, handles, I would say about 15, 20 requests a week of, of, Hey, here's a questionnaire, fill it out. Wow. Um, so we have, I have a pretty sizable customer trust team. So I'm happy to be one of the lucky ones who get, who can say that, but it just seems to grow. And I don't think the problem is actually being solved. And a lot of the questions that I see are looking for the same answers, but they just word it differently. Mm-hmm. And if we have a, let's say we have our sick and sick light, the answer is there, but they're looking for it in that new third-party format. Yep. And there's very little like in-depth analysis done to the answers, like extract the material out of it. They're just looking for certain particular keywords, yep. which is frustrating. I'm probably getting one of these a week right now at the day job, but the last day job, I had a team of three people that were full-time doing nothing but answering these questionnaires, you know, just coming in nonstop. And it's to your point, it's the exact same thing. We began building a database in-house where we actually started saying, okay, you know, they're going to ask about whatever. I'm going to make one up now. Do you have endpoint protection? Okay, here's our answer for endpoint protection. And any survey or question that asks endpoint protection, just cut and paste that sentence, you know, that paragraph, answer the question, you know. And we began doing it that way. But then they would hit us with their third-party sites that wanted us to log in and do it via the web. And some of these clearinghouses, like I, I don't know if you've explored this or looked into this. This one floored me. One of the most popular ones that's the third-party clearinghouse where the purchaser says, vendor, come here and fill out their online web thing. And then if you're the vendor, other purchasers can just use your same answers, right? It's a clearinghouse. I'm sure you know the one I'm talking about, the most popular one out there. As the vendor, I went and looked and said, what if these guys get hacked? They're part of my supply chain. As soon as I give them my info, 25K liability cap on their part. Wow. And I was like, yeah. Well, I don't know if I want to be, so I started telling my customers like, nope, not going there. I'll be glad to fill out your questionnaire and send it to you, my customer with whom I have a contract, but I'm not going to do business with these third party guys. So it gets, it gets interesting. It's a, and and to your point, I don't think it's being solved at all. Yeah. More and more questions, more and more styles and approaches, more and more third party websites, more and more SIGs and SIG lights and whatever else is coming out. And, And I think it's all still to your point. We're just asking each other the same questions over and over again. And, and I don't know that we've advanced supply chain security by that technique. Yeah. And I'm not going to think, sit here and claim that, that I have a good answer, but you know, the unfortunate thing that's happening is that every time a supply chain vendor of the industry goes through an issue, the way the industry is wired now is that the default stance is, well, let's add more questions to the questionnaire. So next time this comes up, we already pick it up. And, And you can think of a couple of, you know, stories in the news that happen where, some vendor, software supplier, you know, was discovered that they were doing weird things on the endpoint, for example, and they fixed it, but it was a big PR mm-hmm. snafu from them. And I've, I've talked to a bunch of people like, hey, how are you thinking about handling this and so on and so forth? And the answer was, well, we're going to be asking more specific questions in the questionnaire. Right. Like, well, then, uh, then to what end? Right. Like, I think, right. you know, we're making the vendor risk management be so burdensome that we're being a pain within organizations. Mm-hmm. We're obviously being a pain with our vendors and suppliers as well. It's obviously very easy for me to sit here and say that because I am I am now a vendor. Right, um, right. But we also have third-party suppliers too, right? So we, yep. we gift the pain and we get the pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm mm-hmm. not sitting here with a small violin. But 
I think we need to get smarter about it. And, and I'm not sure what a good answer is because there's so much liability involved with the outcome of that process that I don't know if there's ever going to be a green field, but I'm hoping somebody smarter than me can, can think of better ways. Well, I had a show, believe it or not, where we may have started to solve this problem. Omkar Arasaratnam from Google, it's a buddy of mine, and he came on the show and we talked about this. And we talked about the fact that the question here is, to your point, grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And what's the point? Like Sig Light, you know, has the word light in its name is 300 plus questions, right? That is not light. I'm sorry. That is not light. What if we confine the questions to what the humans could and should be answering about and rely on SBOM and APIs and everything else to let the machines speak to their own security where we can, right? That was, that was what we came up with. People want to check the security of your pipeline. They can literally log in and check the security of your pipeline and see this was digitally signed and this was, you know, and all the details and, you know, separate dev and prod, you know, identity and access management and blah, 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 blah. You, all that stuff could be, the machines could self-advertise to a certain extent, right? And then you just have the yeah. human questions about, hey, what's your people process for this and that? And suddenly SigLite really does become light. You could, you could get it down to a dozen, maybe two dozen questions. So that was our take on it. I don't know if that's ever going to happen. Yeah, that's that's the direction that we're thinking about where we were a little bit more transparent as far as like what makes up our software. Mm -hmm. uh, and hopefully that uh, would alleviate a lot of the questions. But I think that also requires a receiving side to be technical enough to understand what they're looking at. And, and, and now we're going to get into the how light can we make the S-bomb and easy to digest and what does it actually mean and right. does it mean. Call me a pessimistic, <laughs> but, but yeah, exactly. S-bomb light. Uh, call me a pessimistic, but I think... If we're still answering questions as to why we don't rotate passwords every 90 days, we're never going to get past to the point where S-bombs become an acceptable source of evidence. Yeah. And I think we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're still in that awkward phase. But I think the idealistic part of me believes that that will be the direction to go, where you can just go online for your vendor uh, software suppliers and you see everything that comes with the piece of software that you're installing. What does it mean? And hopefully that makes things a lot easier. Let's shift a little bit here. You're a CISO on the vendor side these days, meeting with fellow CISOs that are on the customer side. And you've got a team that's handling the questionnaires, so you're dealing with more of the CISO to CISO chats. And I guess, you know, stepping back from it, having been traditionally a, a CISO CISO, and now you're a vendor CISO, right? And, and I've hopped right. back and forth across this chasm several times myself. What do you feel like are the skills you're actually leveraging? Like here you are now as a vendor CISO, what skills are you having to leverage? And are they the skills you expected to be uh, needing, you know, in your CISO career? Yes and no. I think I do talk with a lot of prospect CISOs and security teams from prospect customers or current existing customers. And we're also building security products as well, which actually makes the conversation a lot fun, right? Mm -hmm. I've actually, this is a part of my job now that is, it's really motivating because the internal part at least for me, is like been there, done that, right? Kind of thing. Yeah. And, and there are obviously nuances here and there, depending on the organization, that makes it interesting. But the external part is really what makes my job really motivating. As far as skill sets, you know, one of the things for internal teams that I always drive is um, I believe security internally shouldn't be considered or driven as a consulting team, right? Like we, we are equally responsible for the outcome as, as the product development teams or what have you. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that we own the risk, but I'm saying that we're part of that formula. Right. And in a way, you know, if we're part of the company, we have some sort of ownership of that risk as well, uh -huh. right? Because we uh -huh. want the company to be successful. And this goes back to the whole, like who stamps the acceptance or not. And, and that becomes in the CYA, which I, I'm very allergic to. Externally, however, I do apply like, the experience for my consulting days, which is 
attentive listening, your, your understanding, your MP and empathetic, you sympathize. A lot of times I talk to customers that are looking at the problem from what I consider to be I'm from Venus and they're from Mars kind of kind of kind of mindset. Mm-hmm. Particularly for a company like Datadoc, where we get purchased by companies who are little, uh, either moving to the cloud or in the cloud or they were born in the cloud. And I deal with customers whose security teams are struggling with that digital innovation that their companies are going through. And they're, they're actually being the ones trying to be a blocker for it because they don't understand SaaS. They've always liked things to be between, you know, within the four walls. So there I am telling customers in a way saying, you don't want to be the sticky surface of your company's growth and digital innovation because they're going to find a slicker surface and it's going to be with or without you. Right? And right. that's that's the reality of things. So I think consulting, listening, a lot of um, the reading that I do lately is more around how to drive influence and the psychological reaction to it, right? The, the mindset of influence and, and feeling empowered. Um, so I try to absorb some of that and use that when I talk to external CISOs who are struggling with that. All right, let's pause there for just a second and hear a brief word from our sponsor. The complexity of cloud infrastructure means every organization's security challenges are unique. Whether your challenge is threat hunting, policy management, cloud workload protection, or all of the above, Uptix helps you quickly identify and eliminate observability gaps in your security program. That's Uptix. Analytics for the modern attack surface, observability for the modern defender. Check out Uptix by visiting uptix.com. That's U-P-T-Y-C-S dot com. Thank you, Uptix, for sponsoring this episode. Soft skills is what I'm hearing. People skills, communication skills. skills. This kind of begs the question, and, and, and I almost don't want to ask it because it's, it's been done to death on LinkedIn, but how technical should a CISO be versus having these other skills, right? Uh, <laughs> even if you're not a third-party risk for, your, for other businesses and you aren't in the supply chain, you've still got to have business skills as a CISO. Back, back when you weren't a vendor CISO and were just a practitioner CISO, um, how much are these soft skills required? How much business skills are required? And how technical should you or shouldn't you actually be as a CISO, right? And I'm thinking of these CISO job descriptions that say CISSP is mandatory. You know, where, where are you at yeah. on all that? There was actually a big debate on, uh, on Twitter a couple of days ago about this as well is, I think when we say a CISO needs to be technical or how technical, people automatically think about hands-on knowledge or skill sets, right? right. Like my team will probably hate me if I'm actually writing code at this point, because it would be the, the most horrible piece of code. They're writing in languages I don't even know, right? So I'll be like, give me, you know, run this Perl script for me or something like that. Uh, or maybe Python, I'll give myself some credit there. I do think, however, the CISO needs to be technical in the sense of the CISO needs to understand the, the risk environment that they work within, right? So I, I work for a product company. I would not be successful if I didn't understand what product development is right. and having had that background, because there's a lot of nuances and a lot of trade-offs when you're writing software where security, not that security is not important, but there are a thousand other considerations at play when you're writing software and how fast, how slow, when, and, and whenever that if I had come from a natural audit checkbox background, I would be pulling my hair out, right? Because right. it's, it's, it's not, I don't speak the same language. And I see that with some of my compliance team members who come from that background and we have to spend a lot of time on getting them to think about, think outside of the box, read between the lines kind of thing, which doesn't come with that mindset. So now, so that I think that's, a clarification that I like to make is a lot of people say the CISO should not be technical at all. And it's like, well, I disagree, mm-hmm. but I do agree that you don't want me writing, 
you know, exploit code or detection code right now, because yeah, it, it will be horrendous. However, what makes the CISO role hard and very difficult, in my opinion, compared to the, to the peer C-suite roles is that we have to have that business acumen. You know, I'm not discounting my, our CTO and CFO, but nobody questions whether a CFO needs to be really good at finance or not and what else the CFO should be good at because that topic of debate never happens. Right. Nobody questions how much a CTO needs to know technology and product development and reliability, all, all these things that you look at a CTO for being responsible for. So how come a CISO is always having that debate? So I think that makes our role very difficult because we have to be able to work with them and understand their world. But there's nothing saying, oh, CFO, how much security knowledge should you have? And so you can align with the CISO. It's always the CISO has to adapt to the other C-levels, which is fine because I think it gives that exposure that otherwise we wouldn't have, right? I think if this, if everyone else is aligning with the CISO, then we will be that security nerd that only talks about security. Right. Uh, where I think now being a business leader, we do get involved in business decisions, right? Like COVID has created this, this opportunity where the CISO is now part of the conversation of when should we return to the office? How should we do it? Should we do it? Should we not do it? How do we go remote? How do we support that? And if we were just thinking security, it would be no, 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 no. Yes. Uh, right. Versus let's think about the ambiguity here and how do we support our people? So I think it's a long answer to your question, but to say business knowledge is, is really important, being able to talk that business language mm -hmm. and then apply that to whoever you're talking to. So uh, one of my favorite leadership frameworks is situational leadership, where you basically understand where the other person is. And you then craft your message so that they understand it. Yes. And so if I'm talking to a security architect for a customer that I can get a little bit more technical, now there's a pretty high bar of how technical I can get in the sense that the moment that crosses, I'll pull in somebody who's way smarter than me, which is everyone else. But, you know, I can at least understand and talk architecture, technology, right. you know, name a few cloud services here and there. If I'm talking to a CISO from a financial institution, I know that their background will be more compliance audit because they get pounded with audits all the time. So then I, I shift my tone more towards like, think about your audit perspective and what do, how do we fit there? I think that's what makes a role very challenging because we have to be the ones changing the language where, you know, you don't, I mean, again, you don't send your CFO to talk to, to the CISO of another company, right? It's, it's uh, it doesn't work that way. Right. Right. Yeah, I, lo I love that model and I'm, I'm with you. I grew up technical and I don't think I'd be a successful CISO if I had not grown up technical, but that idea that I'm hands-on anymore, yeah, I'm with you. Like, forget it. You don't want me writing your code. <laughs> I barely learned Python back in the day. I'm still a Perl guy more than Python. You know what I mean? And they'd be like, what's Perl? Um, yeah. <laughs> so so I'm with you on all that. Like, like no longer technical, you know, in the sense of hands-on, but, but with a strong technical foundation. And to your model about, you know, we don't challenge the CFO on do you or don't you know finance. We don't challenge, you know, CMO, whoever it might be on do they know their realm. And, and we talk about interrelationships inter and interoperating with these other, these other players. The, the model I like to see is in the middle is this big thing called the business. And right. we all have one foot in that ring and one foot in our own camp. And so the CMO is part marketing and part business. The CFO is part finance and part business. The CISO is part security and part business. And it's in the business arena that we meet with each other and communicate with each other. And that's where the common language is that we should all identify. But if you really want to reach and you really want to connect, 
you've got to go into the marketing space a little bit to relate to and learn the marketing guy, just like they have to come into the security space a little bit. So to your point, I'm not expecting them to pick up and learn security. I don't want my CMO coming to me and, and asking me if I've got, uh, you know, you know, what are, what are my, what are my current controls and protocols on the, you know, on the, on the EDR solution and, you know, whatever it might be. But I do want him to understand some security fundamentals. And I do want the CFO, whoever she might be, you know, to understand some security fundamentals. But but in return, I'm expecting myself to go learn some marketing fundamentals and some finance fundamentals. I should be right. able to sit down with the CFO and understand her language and say, oh, okay, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's get this statement here on the spreadsheet in front of both of us. And I know what you're saying, and you know what I'm saying, and I may ask some stupid questions here and there, but fundamentally. I know what PNL looks like. I know what GNA looks like. I, you know, so so I think we meet each other in that space as we need to. But but in between yep. is this common arena of I just call it the business where we all speak business, right? That's that should be the one arena that all of us are qualified to play in. If you have a C title, yep. you better have one foot in the business, right? Um, and that's that's yep. the model I use. So I, I agree. I think you know to your point, we have to open our eyes and and minds to understand their world. Uh, similar to we have to open our eyes and minds to understand our customers' world as well mm -hmm. and what their pains are and what they're trying to solve. I think as a CISO, if you know if you don't know how to read a balance sheet of a company, it can be pretty challenging to work with a CFO, right? Or PNL understand all those concepts. So right. we have to learn that world, and that makes us a successful C level uh, leader. However, there's never a debate as to how much security they should learn. Like I get, I agree with you that they should learn some. Right, um, but they don't. <laughs> but either I'm not in the CFO forums or Twitter threads or what have you, but I've never seen anyone ask like how much security should a CFO learn. And then, uh, and then it's actually our job to make sure that they're aware of how much security they should learn and sort mm -hmm. of guide them through that point of so like, okay, here's, let me explain to you what we're thinking about and all oh. that. Yep. But if we're not technical, we wouldn't be able to understand deeply the surface that we're discussing to the point that we can bring it up to that level. But also, we also have a team of technical people uh, underneath us. If we're not technical, it's very hard to inspire uh, yes. and have a cohesive vision to our teams that they say, okay, my CISO knows exactly what they're talking about. Right. If, if I'm a CISO and all my job is there is to keep the rest of the C-suite happy and get the team budget and let them drive everything, then am I really being an inspiring leader or not, right? Like, is, is right. my inspiration come from, here's headcount, hire whoever you want, or I can have a conversation with you. I can actually help you grow your career regardless right. of how deep you sit with, within my organization. Like, I'm supposed to be a leader to inspire, not just right. be some unreachable, unreachable person. Right, so right, right. That's why I think I, need, I wouldn't be successful if I wasn't technical, to your point. But also, I wouldn't be able to speak the environment that we work in to customers or other C-suite if I didn't understand it. Yeah, there's another aspect of it, too, that I've always found, which is, you know, need, you need to be able to know, uh, again, back, back to this, why you need the technical background. If your firewall team comes back and tells you uh, it's going to take us eight weeks to configure this firewall, you know, you need to be able to go, uh, dude, I used to do that in two days. You know, like right. you need to be able to exactly. have a little bit of that kind of conversation with your team as well. And then there's also, you know, what is what does a good security architect look like? How, how does somebody come in from engineering, become the first time architect? How do you help evolve them and grow them? And I think this is what you're saying is you've got to be there to be that leader, be that inspiration, but also help them right. chart a course and a trajectory, right? How does an engineer become an architect? Well, here, I can, I can show you, you know, but yeah. if I came from strictly a GRC background, I don't know that I'd be able to do that. But, but then again, to be fair, I had to make a very conscious choice at one point in my career to walk away from the technical side of the house and 
dive into the GRC side of the house because I felt like I was doing them a disservice. Just like we're talking about, if you're not technical, you're doing the technical team a disservice. I didn't know enough about audit. And I didn't know enough about GRC. So I forced myself to take that on and really dive deeply into that. And now I feel like, okay, I've got this twin background and I'm even better qualified as a CISO. But it was a conscious effort on my part to do that. It didn't come right. naturally. And at first I was not doing that team and <laughs> a good a good service as their leader, you know? No, I, I agree. And and we have to expand our horizons there. And it has to be those conscious decisions and uh, because again, if if they work for us, we have to be able to help them grow. And whether we have auditors, GRC, IT, what have you, I, I oversee IT at Datadog, and it's, I mean, I've been customer customer service support during my early days in my career, so I, I, I do have that customer first mindset. But it's an entirely different world than I'm used to. Yeah. Uh, office buildouts, AV, all these things that. But I, you know, I think I have the right people and, and are they making the right decisions? And, and my job there is more about what's the customer feedback that we're getting. Right. But we have to be able to learn what we're given uh, to be able to, to work with it pretty well. How do you balance all those internal duties with the external duties we talked about earlier? Like, how do you juggle that? Average day. Emilio's day. It's Monday. It's 8 a.m. or well, probably six six or seven a.m. realistically. But you know, you, you dive in, you get started, you've got these constant tensions and struggles where you've got the externally facing uh, side of your your business and the internally facing. And, and to your point, you know, the word customer is interchangeable across those two. You know, right. you got internal and external customers. So how do you juggle all that? How do you balance that? It's no secret formula. Um, you know, my approach is I hire the right people to take care of things that I know I'm not going to have a lot of time for, mm -hmm. right? So internally, I have a great compliance and security team and IT teams, and they have their leaders and they're making the decisions that we've already aligned on vision and direction. So I don't get necessarily involved in the day-to-day, -day, um, but I do get involved quite a bit because obviously people will pay me and have feedback and, and all that. So that gives me a lot of time to focus on the external part which is, I think, where I'm mostly needed at this point, given our, our, our growth and trajectory and what we're doing from, with our product. So it does give me a lot of time to make sure that I can dedicate hours of the weeks to customers, prospects, just the industry in general, but then have you know, at least 30% time for internal work as well. And then I interchange depending on where I'm needed for that week or that day. So I balance it by not taking all of myself, right? So mm -hmm. I, I, I leverage people where they're strong. We have a great product team. So I'm not always talking to customers or security products, but when they do need me, I make myself available because I rely on my security teams to handle the internal part if needed. So it's just picking, identifying where I'm needed and then understanding, do I have the right coverage or not without me being there? Right. Uh, and I think that keeps it quite healthy, right? I'm not working excessive long hours or, or I do wake up early because my company is headquartered in New York and I live in LA, but uh, it's for that reason, not because I'm literally burning the candle from both ends. Good delegation skills equals good leadership skills. Me personally, I am burning the candle at both ends, but I'm, I, I don't know. I think it's self-imposed nine times out of 10. doesn't matter where I'm working. I tend to work too much. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. Okay, so we've talked about this balancing of skills. We've talked about balancing of internal and external. We've talked about business skills. We've talked about having the technical foundations, but not necessarily being, you know, quote unquote, technical anymore. Have we defined something here that sort of characterizes like, like, is this the modern CISO we've just defined? Is this what the CISO always was or always should have been? Or has there really been a change these last five or 10 years? Like, what we've characterized as a good CISO in our conversation just now, is that what was always a good CISO? Or do we think there's been an evolution of some kind? 
Oof, uh, I might get rocks thrown at me for for answering this question. I think we've seen an evolution, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think you know the the original version of a CISO, even a security team, was that checkbox driven, say no to keep you know risk healthy uh, type of of function, which is really what led to a lot of the the technical practices that exist today considering devops agile and all these things I, I think it has to do because of the fact that they had to find a way of how to meet the scale of customer demands or the business needs of growth in a way that it's it's pretty fluid and you can deliver on it and i think security is sort of falling behind um or we have historically fallen behind there right i think the analogy or the comparison that i make is the, the Agile Manifesto was written in the early 2000s as NCSF was written a couple of years after that. So we were not even thinking, we were not even in the picture for a reason. And I personally think the worst thing that happened was the power of security to say no, right? And, yeah. and I think that that was the, the original evolution or version of the CISO and security team. Now, if you look at every company, whether they like it or not, they're a technology or product company because yeah. without it, you don't really grow. Uh, so you need to have security people who understand that risk and be pragmatic about it, right? And and it shifted from we want to be zero risk to we want to be operating within acceptable levels of risk. Right. And I think that's our job, right. right? It's not riskless anymore. Right. And the CISO is no longer shouting no at every question and every ask, right? Yeah. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a CISO for long in this in this day and age. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, Emilio, I've got one question for you. I ask every guest at the end of the show. What surprises you the most in cybersecurity? You know, I thought a lot about this one. I want to say that I'm actually seeing a very positive trend, which which surprised me in a good way of people seeing security as their ideal career path. And I see a lot of people moving from different career backgrounds to to security, which is which is awesome. And what really surprised me out of that is security is known for being a very toxic culture or industry. And, and there's there's some of that and we have to you know, work it out, I think, and continue working on it. On it. But I'm seeing an optic or a trend of people being extremely supportive of having somebody from marketing, somebody from sales decide to join security mm-hmm. and really give them that support. Uh, people getting their first technical job as a security professional when they come from a different non-technical background. So I think the toxicity will slowly weed itself out as more people think about Holy crap, like we, we yell at the industry saying that we have an, a skill set shortage and we have all these people who want to join. Let me help them so my job gets a lot easier. So the toxicity will hopefully weed itself out with that. But I'm extremely surprised about that trend and I hope that it continues to grow. That's wonderful. That's a great answer. That's a great answer. I don't think anyone's uh, tackled that one head on without question before. That's fantastic. Well, Emilio Escobar, CISO at Datadog, former VP of Information Security at Hulu. Thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now.